The text, as I mentioned, is Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 5, verse 11. We won't read that again, but I would ask you to have your Bibles handy and open so you can refer back to it. In response to the preaching, we'll sing hymn 51, all three stanzas. If we are faithless and we stray, He faithful will remain for a. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, does this story of Ananias and Sapphira leave you feeling uneasy, maybe somewhat disconcerted? Does it seem unfair to you what happened to them? I mean, what exactly did this couple do wrong? And was their deed so bad that they deserved to literally drop dead? Did they even have a chance to repent? It's not hard to read that story in Acts 5 and feel like this couple was very harshly treated, like the punishment didn't fit the crime, that this whole thing is somehow blown way out of proportion. That certainly would be a natural human reaction until we realize that what happened to Sapphira and Ananias was not a human punishment, but the direct act of God. In fact, it was a direct act of our ascended Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as we know, is seated at the throne of His Father in heaven, at the right hand of His Father, and He's in charge of His Father's affairs. So, the Father runs the world through Jesus, through His Son. Peter mentions several times in our text that the couple offended the Holy Spirit, whom he calls in verse 9, the Spirit of the Lord, meaning the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. This is the same Lord Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit on the Pentecost day, just a couple of chapters earlier. So it's the same Lord Jesus who now acts and snuffs out the life of Ananias and Sapphira. We have to come to grips with that. And it has to alter our evaluation of what is going on here. I mean, if Jesus, our merciful and loving, kind, self-sacrificing Savior, if He thought that this was the good and right thing to do, then we have to set aside our human feelings and evaluation, and we have to try to see what the King saw, what King Jesus saw, and try to understand what Christ was doing when He acted to strike down Ananias and Sapphira. For there is indeed a bigger picture here, a picture of the high King in heaven establishing and affirming His chosen servants, the twelve apostles. 
as his spokesman. And so I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme, King Jesus, King Jesus validates the authority of his apostles. We'll see that he provides them the power to preach and the power to discipline. Now, before we look at the details of our text, I just want to take a a step back for a moment and see that bigger picture unfolding from the end of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 5. And there's a lot going on in these chapters. We've been exploring them together in the preaching. There's a description at the end of chapter 2 of how the first believers were together worshiping and fellowshipping. Then we get the healing of the lame man in the temple, then the arrest of Peter and John, then the prayer to God which was answered by the shaking of the house in which they were in. Then comes our text where the the generosity and the unity of the church is further described. Then the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, and finally at the end of five, the arrest and persecution of all twelve apostles. So when you read those three chapters, it can seem like a string of unrelated events, just one thing happening after another, not a lot of connection. But when you take a closer look, you find that in the center of these chapters, in the center of all these events, are in fact those twelve apostles. Going back to chapter 2, the early believers, they devote themselves to what? to the teaching of the apostles, we're told, end of two. The new converts, they recognize the authority of the apostles as messengers of the ascended Christ, and so they submit themselves to their teaching. And then in chapter 3, two lead apostles, Peter and John, they heal a man, they are arrested, and they're told, never ever preach or teach in the name of Jesus again. That's a challenge to their authority, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities. They don't recognize Christ, let alone His apostles. So what is unfolding here in these chapters is an identity issue and a power struggle. The identity issue is who is the true Israel and who are their genuine true leaders? Is it the unbelieving Jews and the Sanhedrin over them, or is it in fact this Christian community and the apostles of Jesus over them? Are they the true Israel as they claim? And when the Lord shook the house in response to the prayer of the apostles, as we saw last time, then that was a sure sign that the Lord God was on the side of the apostles. And now in our text, Luke presents more evidence that King Jesus really is on the throne in heaven and that these 12 men really do represent Him on earth and are acting on His say-so. You see, the prayer that was offered and the shaking of the house that resulted, that was a powerful confirmation, but only to a few. It was obvious only to some, only to those who were on hand. So you could say that was confirmation on a, on a small scale from heaven. But now in our text, King Jesus, He widens out 
that confirmation, and he makes it very clear and widely known throughout Jerusalem that his apostles are the real deal. That's how Luke begins verse 32. He he says there's a wider audience here. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was their own or his own, but they had everything in common. So from that smaller gathering of apostles and maybe a few disciples in the house praying, now we've got the full number, and by now in the book of Acts, that's at least 5,000 men, Luke has told us. And if you add to that the possibility of women and children, we could be up to 15,000, 20,000 people. And Luke says they are totally united in heart and soul. United in what? They're united in their faith in Jesus Christ. They're united in their submission to the preaching and teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And isn't that of itself remarkable proof that Jesus is on the throne in heaven? I mean, when else do you see thousands upon thousands of people so united in heart and soul that they believe the same things, they think the same way, they eat meals together, and they freely give out their possessions to help any one of the group in need. So there's an outpouring of power from heaven among these thousands of believers. And notice that the effect of unity among these Christians and the prompting of their generosity, notice that it's, it's brought about through the, the, the preaching of the apostles, the simple preaching. Verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the apostles are preaching Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. That's what they're doing, and then the rest follows as a result. The picture picture we have here is of Christ's apostles being in the center of the community, and power is emanating from them and, and through their preaching, in and through their preaching. Remember, the Sanhedrin has just ordered them not to preach in the name of Jesus to which they had responded, they must obey God rather than men. So as they boldly proclaim, and as these results unfold in the the communion of the saints, it becomes super clear that God supports them, that they did and are doing the right thing, that the high King of heaven, Jesus Christ, wants them to disobey the Sanhedrin's command and continue to obey His command to preach and teach. He's validating their authority to preach. They preach with great power, says Luke. Then he adds, and great grace was upon them all. Grace is the favor of God. You could say it's the gift of God, it's the love of God resting upon the whole community. So we see here a twofold work of God that the Spirit of Jesus was in the apostles, causing them to boldly preach Jesus, 
And then the Spirit of Jesus was also lavishly, because it says great grace, mega grace, He was lavishly upon all the listeners, moving their hearts to respond to the preaching. How do they respond? Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So compare this to old Israel under the Sanhedrin. In old Israel, there were Jewish panhandlers and blind men and lame people at many street corners, right? As Jesus walked through the countryside and through the towns, as the apostles even were going up to the temple, they constantly encountered many beggars, many poor people, even at the temple gates. But here in new Israel, among the the thousands of believers in this true Israel of God under the reign of King Jesus and under the authority of the apostles, there's not a single poor person among them. That's a tremendous contrast to the way that the Jews were operating. There were no beggars because all were looked after. This is the very ideal that God had long before commanded Israel in Deuteronomy 15 where he said, there are to be no poor among you, because I'm going to bless you so richly that even if there are poor, you are to share with your poor brother. Well, that was an ideal ignored and despised even by the Sanhedrin, but it was an ideal honored and upheld by Jesus and his apostles, not a single poor person in maybe the ten or 15,000 people. And it's all sparked, says Luke. It's all sparked by that simple preaching. Did you see that? The apostles, they didn't start community programs. They didn't even give specific instructions that the poor should be cared for. Luke says they preached the the resurrection of Jesus. And when you look back to Acts 2, when you look ahead to Acts 5, that was indeed the central component of their preaching. Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. Those are the indisputable facts about which the (coughs) twelve apostles are witnesses. And that formed a message which changed and changes things. It can't help but change things. In fact, everything changes as that message gets out. It's a message that changes the world, right? Right? Why does it change the world? Because the fact is, the devil no longer dominates the world. He's been cast down from his throne, and now light pierces the darkness of this world because Jesus is on the throne. That's a fact. changes things. And it changes people, too, because the guilt of sinners has been totally paid for by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peace with the Almighty has been won for people. And when the Holy Spirit opens the hearts of people to accept that message and believe the gospel, then those hearts and those lives are instantly changed. And it shows. It shows in their attitude. It shows in their words. It shows in their actions. That's what's going on here in Acts 4, end of 4. If you know yourself loved by God 
because of Jesus, out of grace alone, then you cannot help but be graciously disposed toward your neighbor, especially your fellow Christian. When the weight of your own guilt has been lifted off your shoulders, when you know and experience peace with God, when previously you had been condemned to eternal death, when you now know the joy of everlasting life, of course you're going to act kindly and generously toward your neighbor and doubly so toward your brother or sister in Christ. Isn't that the feeling of your own heart, brothers and sisters, knowing what you've been given? You then treat your neighbor likewise? See, the more we focus on Christ and what He has done for us, the more Christ will change our lives to become like Himself. Luke tells us that whenever a Christian sold a piece of property, they would bring the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet. And from there, the money would then be distributed to any who had need among the believers. Now, that expression, laying it, the money at the apostles' feet, I want to draw your attention to that a moment because it is found three times in our text. And it's not found anywhere else in the book of Acts. And it's Luke's way of underlining the issue at stake here. The issue is the authority of those apostles. And in Bible times, if you laid something at somebody's feet, you were recognizing their authority, recognizing their right to do with that thing as seemed best to them. We have examples in the Old Testament of defeated enemies who would come and literally bow themselves at the feet of the victorious conqueror, seeking mercy. We also have that promise in Psalm 110 of God the Father promising His own Son that He would rule at His right hand until He placed His enemies beneath His feet. So, the picture we have in chapter 4, verse 32 to 37 is that after the arrest of Peter and John and, and their release and that prayer, the Christian community still very much sees the apostles for what they were, true servants of Christ Jesus, leaders of new Israel. Luke even gives a specific example in Joseph, verse 36. And notice how he introduces him. He says that he was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Just a little thing Luke slips in there, but when in the Bible somebody names somebody else, and here we have the apostles giving a name to Joseph, well, that's always an indicator that the person is in authority over the one who receives the name. Now, Barnabas is going to come back in Luke's story to play a larger role, but here he is an example of what was happening generally among the believers. Barnabas shows full respect and submission to the apostles by laying his monetary gift down at their feet. And he was a Levite, we're told. Now, think about that for a second. Levites, if you go back to the Old Testament, Levites 
they were the, together with the priests caring for the tabernacle and the temple. Normally speaking, they received gifts from the other Israelites because they did not have land of their own to farm. They were temple servants and they made their living from the gifts of the rest of the Israelites. They would normally then be assisting the priests, these Levites. They would normally be working for the Sanhedrin in the temple. But this Levite is exemplary. He's showing the way. In New Israel, the Levites recognize that it is no longer the priests in the temple. It's no longer the Levites or the Sadducees ruling over God's people. It's no longer the the Jewish council that has the ultimate authority, but it is these 12 apostles of Jesus Christ who themselves are Jews from many of the tribes, but called by Christ to be the foundation stones of His church. So all this activity, this this unusual and clearly divinely blessed activity in the church community is the way that King Jesus shows to the whole city of Jerusalem that He is alive He is ruling on high. He's active through these apostles. Their powerful preaching and all of its results is proof positive that He is alive and well, and they are His spokesmen. And then King Jesus confirms that with an act of powerful discipline that nobody could deny. For that's what's happening in Luke 5, or rather Acts 5, 1 through 11. Luke here presents Ananias and Sapphira in direct contrast to Barnabas. Ananias also brings money to lay at the apostles' feet, but we are told fairly quickly in verse 2 that with his wife's knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, let's pause just a moment to clarify what's, what's been going on here with the selling of property and the bringing of money. To begin with, none of this was a form of communism, not even close, as some people like to think. In communism, no individual is permitted to hold property, much less sell it. You have to give it all over to the state, but that's not going on here at all. Here there is no coercing. There is no forcing anyone to sell their property. It's purely voluntary. Peter's response to Ananias makes that clear, verse 4. While it remained unsold, Ananias, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, it was totally up to you what to do with that property. Nobody was forcing you to do that. So the picture we have is that individual believers were moved by the Spirit of Christ through that preaching. This was their response. They would willingly sell their property in order to benefit those who were in financial need. It also does not say that every believer gave up everything they had. Barnabas could well have had another field or house which he continued to own. Later in Acts 11, for example, we find Mary, the mother of John Mark, living in her own house 
So not everybody was selling off all their property, not by a long shot. Barnabas sold one field. That's what we're told. Others clearly sold amounts of property, not to give up everything and become poor themselves, but with the purpose to help those who had little to nothing. And notice that it was individuals who sold their property. They didn't hand over the deeds to the apostles or to the collective trust of the church, but they, they decided what to do with the property. They sold it, and then they handed the proceeds over to the apostles. So the picture is very, very much one of sacrificial giving from the heart, voluntary. These Christians, they looked at their possessions in a new way compared to when before when they weren't Christians. They saw their possessions not as things to, to hang on to at all costs, not to enrich themselves, not to use for personal gain, but they saw their possessions, their property, their assets, their whatever, they saw them as instruments, as tools to help fellow Christians in need, and they did it gladly. That's very much the picture here. This wasn't tight-fisted giving. They sold and they gave and they did it gladly because they knew how much they had received through Christ. The question they were asking themselves was along these lines, how can I use the financial blessings God has given me to serve my Lord and bless my neighbor? How can I put my resources to use for the honor of my King? Isn't that the question we should be asking ourselves too all the time? The money, the assets, the stuff we have, and we have a lot of stuff, all of us. See it as an opportunity to use it for the service of the Lord and the blessing of those who don't have a lot of stuff. The other thing that is not mentioned specifically but seems clear from the way Peter responds to both Ananias and Sapphira is that when a person decided to sell a piece of property and give the proceeds to the church for the poor, some way or another they made that clear in advance that that's what they were going to do. We're not told exactly how they did this. Perhaps they made a voluntary vow uh, to the apostles, that would have been uh, on the analogy of what was done frequently at the temple. Um, Jews were long able and had the opportunity to make voluntary vows at the temple. They would go to see the priests and they would say to the priests, you know, I'm so thankful to God for what He's given me. I pledge, I promise, I vow to give this or to do that. And then they would be expected to fulfill their vow. So that was a common thing in Israel. Might have been the way that the Christians operated. We don't know. But whatever the case, Ananias and Sapphira, they understood what was happening. They knew the pattern here. The, the pattern of committing to sell, then selling and giving the entire proceeds of what was sold to the apostles. They understood that when somebody came with a bag of money and laid it at the apostles' feet, that that was the whole price of the property unless otherwise stated. 
They understood the expectations involved and they conspired together, says verse 2, to keep some of the money for themselves. So what was their sin? Their sin was not deciding to give only a portion of the proceeds of the sale. Their sin was not even wanting to keep a portion of the proceeds for their own use. Peter says that very plainly to them in verse 4. You could have done that. No problem. It was yours. Their sin was deception. Their sin was trying to pull a fast one over the apostles and over the whole church community. You see, they were gaming the system. They would come with a bag full of denarii just like Barnabas had done and laid at the apostles' feet just like Barnabas had done and everybody would think they had done just like Barnabas had done. They were intending to let everybody think that they had been just as generous, just as self-sacrificing as Barnabas and some of the others when in reality they were not as generous they were not what they were presenting themselves to be. They, in fact, had kept some of the money for themselves. So there was greed in their hearts that was motivating some of this. They wanted to have some money for themselves to spend on their own comfort, but they wanted the credit of giving it all to the church for the poor. They wanted that, that honor of being known as sincere and generous and sacrificial and kind-hearted. They wanted to have the same reputation as Barnabas. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how this was the work of Satan in undermining the authority of the apostles just as much as the Sanhedrin was undermining the authority of the apostles by denouncing them... <laughs> and commanding them to no longer preach. Satan is very clearly involved here. Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now just put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. Peter knew all about a frontal attack of Satan, didn't he? He knew all about the wiles of the devil because only months earlier he had been attacked by the devil. The devil had asked to sift Peter like wheat, we find in the Gospels, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. That was the night where Peter said three times he did not know Jesus of Nazareth. He denied his Savior three times, instigated by the devil. So Peter knew what he was talking about. He had also seen Judas, filled with, us, with Satan, lead the enemies of Jesus right to him. So here was Satan in the heart of Ananias, in the heart of Sapphira. And what lie had Satan put into their hearts? Well, it was the lie that these apostles were just ordinary men who could not possibly detect their true motives. And underneath that, they believed the worst lie 
that King Jesus was in fact not on the throne and that these twelve were not His servants, not acting on His behalf. For if they truly believed in the powerful ruler on high, King Jesus, that He was alive and well and that His Spirit had filled the apostles to exercise His authority on earth, if they believed that, they would never have dared lie to Peter and the apostles. Satan was using this couple and this couple let themselves be used by Satan. Peter also says to them, why did you let this happen? Satan was using them to push and to test the claims of Jesus, to call them into doubt. These apostles, they're just like anybody else. They're just like any they're ordinary people. They're not special. These apostles can surely be manipulated and lied to and used to gain personal glory just like anybody else, right? That was the working assumption of Ananias and Sapphira. But they were dead wrong. At this moment of attack, right an attack at the root of Christ's work in gathering in His new Israel, His church, and right at the beginning of this work, threatening to derail the whole thing, King Jesus acts with a powerful discipline that nobody could misunderstand. Notice that Peter is the one who calls out Ananias and later Sapphira, but he doesn't strike them dead. It's Jesus who strikes them dead. As head of the apostles, as spokesman for the ascended Lord, he speaks like a prophet, and he's given divine insight. He, he speaks in the same vein as an Elijah or an Elisha. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Sounds like Elisha talking to Naaman. How could you have this thought in your heart, Naaman? How could you have this thought in your heart, Ananias and Sapphira? Nobody else could have called them on that. You understand? Nobody else would have known their lie. It was not possible to verify that lie. They could have covered over their coveting. This was a secret attack against Christ and His servants. And that's why King Jesus acts so swiftly and so severely. Satan must not be allowed to gain a toehold in his church, in Christ's church. If Ananias and Sapphira had gotten away with this, then they would have believed their lies. They would have also spread that lie in some way, shape, or form. And Satan would have certainly continued to spread his lies in other hearts, making more people doubt the <coughs> authenticity of the apostles and their claim that Jesus holds all the power on high. This would have been an insidious beginning of doubts creeping in. But as Ananias and Sapphira fall dead in dramatic fashion, there can be no doubt who is king. The position of King Jesus and His apostles is validated, it is clarified, and it is greatly strengthened in all of this. And what Peter had earlier preached is now made abundantly clear. The day of the Lord it has arrived. That's what he said in chapter 2, that, those verses we read. 
quoting from Joel. That day or that, that era that extends from the ascension of Jesus until His return, in the Scriptures it's called the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called the last days, but it refers to a whole period of time. Well, that whole era has two sides to it. It's got the side of salvation, and it's got the side of judgment. Peter mentions both in his Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2, and I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And here come the signs. These are signs of judgment, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's the note of salvation. Peter is describing, Joel is describing the whole last age of this earth. There is divine threat and judgment, but also by grace there is divine salvation for God's people. And Peter implies that again later in chapter 2, verse 40, save yourselves, he says to the crowd, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And in Acts 3, he comes back to it when he describes Jesus as the great prophet like Moses, whom God raised up and to whom all must listen. And then Peter issues a sharp warning, 3, verse 23, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet, Jesus, shall be destroyed from my people. That's what's going on in Acts 5, 1 through 11. Ananias and Sapphira, they did not listen to the voice of Jesus who spoke to them through the mouth of His apostles, and they were destroyed from the people. First the husband, and then the widow, almost before she realizes she is or was a widow. If their deaths and this story causes a chill to go down your spine, brothers and sisters, that would be the right response. Because twice Luke mentions in this text that a great fear came upon all the church and indeed all who heard of it beyond the church community. It was a message nobody could deny. King Jesus is not to be trifled with. He is holy God and His apostles are His holy servants. We are also meant to take a warning from all of this the authority of the teaching of the apostles, which we now have in the, in the Scriptures in written form, that authority is not to be slighted in any way. For King Jesus stands behind their words to play games with the church of Jesus Christ, to think that secret sins will never be exposed, to imagine that the church is merely a gathering of humans, merely a society of like-minded people that perhaps we could use in some way for our personal advantage. If anybody thinks like that, that's the thinking of Ananias and Sapphira, that is a fatal mistake because this is the church of Jesus Christ this congregation 
and every faithful congregation the world over is owned and operated by King Jesus. That's a warning and a powerful comfort for all of us, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's not our church. We call it our church. Come to my church. Visit our congregation. That's fine. It's the church we go to. But the owner, the owner? Ask Jesus. Those apostles of Jesus, they've completed their task of laying the foundation of doctrine for the church to build on so the apostles no longer walk the earth. They, they were unique figures but King Jesus has sent elders and deacons and pastors to, to govern each congregation. Together, we live in the last days. We live in that day of the Lord. So let us doubly avoid any deceit or underhandedness. That's the devil's work. Instead, let us, like the early church, let us rally together around the teaching of the apostles here in the Scriptures, fellowshipping with one heart and mind, sharing with each other, caring for each other as any has need, looking to build up the church, the bride of Christ, doing it for the glory of Christ. That's our calling. That's our joy. And if we pursue that, that will be for our blessing. Amen.